This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Welcome to episode 116 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I'm Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Thank you for listening. Today, we welcome Greg Bennick from the hardcore band Trial. You're probably wondering right now, what does this have to do with emo? He's not in an emo band. Well, fortunately for you, and unlike myself, Greg is an amazing speaker and storyteller. He is a motivational speaker, in fact, a humanitarian and a movie producer. This man does not sleep, but he also knows a lot about music, a lot about how we perceive music, and it was a really, really enjoyable conversation. Uh, we talk about the 90s, we talk about straight edge, we talk about emotional music. You are going to enjoy it, so stick around. You're going to like it. If you haven't heard, I have a book. It's called Anthology of Emo, Volume 1. It was a labor of love the last couple of years, and it's transcriptions of 10 interviews from the podcast, and it has photos and other pieces of history from the bands, and a completely independent produced book. If you're interested in buying one, carrying it in your country store, etc., head to anthologyofemo.com for more information. And also, if you're on the internet, rockabilia.com. They have every shirt, merch item that you can think of. Rockabilia.com has over 500,000 items, so there is something for everyone. Finally, thank you to the Patreon supporters. You make this podcast This is episode 116 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Greg Benick from Trial. Hello. Hello, Greg. Now we're in business. This should sound much better. <laughs> America, we did it. <laughs> yep, we figured it out. I love it. So, Greg, I just would love to kind of find out, um, you know, from you, like, what was that first moment for you? with music or finding out that that was something that you wanted to do was there a was there a moment was there a was there an older older sibling with a record was there that moment yeah you know there was there was a couple moments for me and the moments were were kind of varied meaning i you know i started out listening to to metal as many people did back in the day and I remember, you know, going to see some early, you know, metal concerts, I guess you'd say, you know, when I was probably 14, 15 years old. And I remember going to see at one point, and this isn't the moment that turned me into a, a hardcore participant, right? But I went to see Bon Jovi opening for Rat, and I was front row center. And oh, I remember shit. at one point, yeah, it was, it was bonkers, because Bon Jovi came out on stage and Slippery When Wet had not come out yet. So he came out and his big hit was runaway. 
So he played Runaway, and everyone went crazy. And we thought Bon Jovi was the coolest thing in the world. And then, of course, Slippery When Wet came out, you know, sometime around the next year or so. And then, obviously, the whole world came untangled and unraveled, and everyone fell to pieces. You know, just because it was, you know, the ultimate thing in the world. You know, you know, you give love a bad name was such a game changer for anybody alive in the '80s, right? But at the time, you know, Bon Jovi opened for Rat, and I was all about Rat. I just thought that they were just unstoppable. And I remember at one point. Robin Crosby, who played second guitar for Rat, uh, rhythm guitar, at one point walks to the center of the stage and, you know, he strums some chord, grabs a beer, pours it over his own head, and then proceeds to headbang in my general direction after looking at me, showering me with sweat and beer. And I thought to myself, I'm never going back. I'm a changed person now. <laughs> I walked into this show, you know, I walked into the show a 14-year-old, you know, who had just, you know, grown up listening to Top 40 and Casey Kasem's American Top 40, Rick D's and all this crap. And all of a sudden, Robin Crosby showers me with sweat and beer. And I thought, it is never going to be the same again. Okay, so that was, that was one moment. The hardcore moment, was uh, there was two actually one was uh the first show i ever saw was who's could do um and uh they were they were playing at the uh, the agora ballroom in, in connecticut and my friend and i went and at one point we decided to walk around in back of the stage just because and we were walking around the back of the stage and uh grant hart and bob mold were drinking water from a water fountain and as we walked by them my friend said to them Welcome to Connecticut. And they both turned kind of like, yeah, okay, cool kid. Thanks. You know? <laughs> and as, as uh, Bob Mould leaned down to get a drink of water, my friend added, just don't drink the water. And they both turned around and laughed as if we'd <laughs> warned them, you know, you're, you're in the third world now or something, but you know, just don't drink the water. And they turned around and laughed. And I thought, no way you can actually talk to the musicians in punk rock. This is so cool. Like, and they respond to you like, this is amazing. Cause that didn't happen with Robin Crosby. I could have said to him like, thanks for the beer sweat shower. And he wouldn't have responded to me, but these guys actually turned, laughed and responded. And then, uh, it went one step further. And the, this was the hook that changed it all for me. I went to see naked Raygun at the anthrax with my same friend. And at one point in one of their songs, there's this quick musical break and this like three word vocal line, you know, I'm still hurting and naked ray guns playing. We're right up front. They get to this break in the song. And in that moment where Jeff Pizzotti, the singer is going to scream and I'm still hurting my friend standing right. You know, we're standing right in front of Pizzotti belts out and I'm still hurting at the top of his lungs. And Pizzotti doesn't even sing the line himself. He just looks down at my friend and just goes, yeah, like he's so and I thought, oh my God, you can not only like speak at the punk rock people, but interact with them and take control of the show on your own terms, based on your own passion. I'm changed forever. And that was it. So, I mean, those are, those are, I mean, you can see the sort of parallels um, a lot about Mm -hmm. with DIY, with hardcore, with that sort of connection with the audience. Um, What did that, what did that start us? snowballing in i mean that's some fucking great shows rat husker do naked ray gun uh it was that is such a great that is such a great uh you know class (laughs) you know the class of rock right there it's crazy and and the thing is I, i don't you know i don't um pretend to be so old school that i'm truly as old school as it gets right because if you talk to people 
you know, talk to the people who are around in New York, talk to the, you know, the, the Sibs and Richie Birkenheads and all these, these people who were around in hardcore and going to shows, you know, in the proverbial, you know, you and your crew would have never made it through the days we hung out in 1982, like the judge lyrics, you know, and you start to hear stories of like 1982, 83, 84, 85. It's like, Oh my goodness like this is crazy or like you know i met um i was at i was at this, at this conference like a business conference and i mentioned punk rock i was actually speaking at this conference i mentioned punk rock this is last month and a guy about 60 years old walks up to me after the conference in a suit and he says he says hey you ever heard of sick of it all and i'm like uh this is weird yes sir i've heard of sick of it all well like a business conference you ever heard of sick of it all and i'm like yeah i've heard of sick of it all he's like yo craig satari that's my cousin and i'm like holy shit so we're standing around this business conference talking about like sick of it all new york hardcore and the shows that this guy went to at cb's like like in the like the 70s i'm like oh my god these are like the real humans you know so my point is i i don't propose you know, to be so old school that I I'm of worth based on that merit alone. But when I think about the first handful of shows I saw, it was literally like the first four shows I saw were, were, were Husker do bad brains. Like I, it was Husker do bad brains, agnostic front circle jerk, some crazy thing like that, like, like over the course of a month. And I took it for granted, you know, I'm like 16, 17 years old. just like, Oh, every city's got this, but it just wasn't the case. You know, it just wasn't the case. So what about some of those, those, ideals and ethics stuck with you because they stuck through to, you know, trial and uh, how you sort of presented, I think, or or excuse me, the the band presented themselves um, and sort of those things that, you know, if there was violence at shows or if there was those uh, stereotypes, like you were sort of, where did you, what did you pull from each of those to sort of, put that together because I, I yes they were bands that and hardcore shows would be like everyone, everyone you know listen up we're going to tell you something but they didn't do anything they just kind of said right. it for five seconds on stage what was that difference for you I know we're skipping ahead but I feel like it kind of plays into you saw those things you saw Bob Mould laugh at you you saw you know the guy yep. from Naked Rigo what were those things that connected well the things I, I'll tell you just a perfect example there was one night my friend same friend and I went to see a band called uh, Victim's Family I, I couldn't t- name one Victim's Family album right now for you, but at the time, evidently, I liked them. The show ran long. There was some cancellation of something and blah, 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 and the 100 people that showed up at the show dwindled as the first few bands played, uh, dwindled to 70, 60, 40, 30, and by the time Victim's Family went on, it was a weeknight, um, you know, 12.30 in the morning or something like that, there was maybe 12 of us in the Anthrax to see this band, and I remember Victor's family came out on stage and I expected them to be like, yeah, screw this. We're up. Thanks everybody. They came on stage and played their set as if there was 500 people in the room. And again, I couldn't name one song of theirs at this point, but I was so taken by the fact that the band cared about the people who were there, not getting lost in their own egos about the people that weren't there. That was a huge lesson for me. And many years later when trial played and I, it was either Cincinnati or somewhere in Ohio. I remember I think it was Cincinnati. We played a show where the opening band started and there was maybe 30 people in the room. They left all their friends left. And then the second band uh, set up and played, they left their friends left leaving the sound man, my friend Andy, who I had invited and us and the sound man sound checked us and left leaving trial in the venue, in this basement venue, with my friend Andy. And 
I, we just sort of looked around at everybody. They looked at me and we we're like, all right, let's go for it. So I just said, this one goes out to Andy. This one's called Through the Darkest Days. And we're like, every song was like, this one goes out to Andy. She was the only one sitting there. Like, they're standing there. But it was that ideal of it's for the people who are there, not in, you know, you don't do things in response to the people who aren't there. That's a, that was a perfect example of, of, you know, how that, how that carried over for me. And then the other thing that did it quite honestly was just listening to, um, to hardcore that had ideas and punk rock that had ideas in it. You know, one of my favorite albums was the proletariat from Boston, their album indifference. This was a game changer for me. This was an album that was so melodic and not angry yet. It was so pissed off and so unable to reconcile the fact that homelessness was allowed or that Native American injustice was, you know, injustice against Native Americans was allowed. It was so angry, yet not being chugga-chugga, mosh-mosh, punch your friend, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought, oh my God, if these guys can be like intelligent and insightful and angry at the same time, maybe that's something to aspire to that I might, I might hit as a mark someday. And did you, did you think, you know, I'm going to be a singer or were you playing guitar? Were you, were you doing bands in Connecticut or did that only start in, in Seattle? Yeah, no, no, no. I was doing bands in Connecticut. I was playing drums. And I say that very, 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 uh, cautiously. I hit drums with drumsticks, but there's a difference between doing that and actually playing the drums. I was <laughs> a, a horrific piss poor drummer. Um, I had a band called Process of Elimination in Connecticut, which put out a seven inch at like a million years ago. And, you know, no one cared other than our friends. We used to do shows in this barn in the next town over and all the same 40 kids would show up every time and mosh and we'd all go eat at this diner afterwards. We thought we were the coolest thing in the world. Um, you know, while the Gorilla Biscuits youth of today's were playing, you know, 40 minutes away at the Anthrax, we were pretty oblivious to that for a while. We were just like, we're doing our own thing and we rule like we didn't need anybody else. But, uh, yeah, when I moved to Seattle, it was only because a couple friends were starting a band and, you know, I thought, you know, why don't I try to sing? I had no idea what I was doing. My God, like no idea vocally what I was doing. Um, but just decided to give it a try just because, you know, I was so inspired by the, the weird singers. And when I say weird singers, I say that with such love and affection. Um, you know, just like, you know, the singer of, of code of honor, like in this, this punk band or, or proletariat, um, these people who were taking totally unconventional approaches. I was like, you know, why not? I could try to be, you know, take an approach. I don't have to sound like, you know, you know, Roger from agnostic front. I don't need to sound like Ray Capo. I can just sound like Greg, whatever that sounds like. And, you know, honestly, I contend that it was only two, three years ago. That I figured out how to sing maybe four years ago. Like I had no idea what I was doing for about 17 years. <laughs> I mean, I love that sort of the, 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 the singing part. And you know, that's, that's such an important part of this, the song as everything is. But for me, it's like if, if I listen to a band and I'm like, I can instantly be like, well, that sounds like agnostic front. I mean, it's like, I want something, right. I want something a little bit different. Um, it's why I actually, I loved sheer terror. I thought Paul Bearer was like a little bit different for me. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, there was just some, you know, I could, it was, uh, it was almost like a, like a little firing squad, you know, to be like, Oh, they sound like this. See you later. I want something I a little it. different. <laughs> and I, yeah. And I hear you about sheer terror. And the reason I laugh is because my girlfriend's favorite ba band is sheer terror. Okay. So now I've said that publicly. Okay. I've said that publicly <laughs> when we started dating, when she and I started dating, you know, you go, when you meet somebody and you start to get to know them, 
if you're if you've ever been in a relationship that's failed and you're carrying any sort of wound, you start going through the up. Oh, nope, that's a deal breaker. And if you're too sensitive and not yet uh, self-assured and not yet over your past relationship, ridiculous things can be deal breakers, right? Because you're so afraid of getting hurt again. It can be like, oh, she doesn't like onions. That's it. This isn't going to work out. And you protect yourself and you self-sabotage the relationship. Okay. So going into this relationship, I said to myself, no self-sabotaging. Just going to see how it goes. Anything goes. Like there's a lot of different things that can go right and wrong in a relationship. I'm open-minded. And then she's like, I love Paul Bearer. I love sheer terror. And I thought to myself, there's no possible way this relationship's going to work. Like, there's no possible way. There's no possible way. And I think I said to her outright, I think I said to her outright, I will never admit, even to people I don't like, that you like sheer terror. I won't admit that to anybody. No one's going to know. And, uh, you know, recently, recently, you know, they played like last weekend with Indecision. And, and Tom Sheen and I were texting back and forth. I'm like, dude, are you really playing the show with Sheer Terror? Because my girlfriend loves Sheer Terror. I can't believe I'm admitting that to you. And, you know, we had a quick chuckle about it. But there it is. Now it's out on the table. It's out it's there. My friend that knows, everybody that knows. My God. Okay. <laughs> what's, what's your deal with Sheer Terror? I think they're great in terms of being unique. I, the idea that my, my girlfriend loves Paul Bearer is a little bit unsettling to me. What, I mean, what can I say? Like, this All is right. not, this is not like, put it this way. If she said to me, if she said, you know what, you know what I love, Greg, I love fight club, Brad Pitt, like so hot in fight club. I'd be like, you know what? No question about it. Brad Pitt in fight club. That's about as hot as a human <laughs> male can get. Like no question about it. Okay. If she said that, I'd be like, you know what? Game on. Or she's like, I went to saw, I went to see Deadpool and what's his name, Ryan Reynolds. Like this is a, like this is a hot human male. I'd be like, I'm with you. But when she's like, I love Paul Bearer, it's like I don't even ask. What do you mean you love Paul Bearer? Like you find him attractive? Like you like the quality of his voice? Like his his <laughs> lyrics appeal to you? Like I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I just like let it be. I just let it be. I can't wait for the tour. I can't wait. Oh God, yeah, it's just bonkers. Anyway, so when you got to Seattle. Um, the, you know, was it, was it something that it was just like you said, a couple friends said, come out, we want to start a band. Yeah, basically I was in Seattle a few years. I went out to go to acting school, graduated acting school. And after acting school, Derek Harn, who later uh, was you know, played bass in HIMSA and, and Tim McIntosh, who was in trial all the years of trial, uh, they wanted to form a band and, and they came to me and I can't remember how or why it was me. Uh, maybe everyone, every other singer in the city was taken or something. They're like, ah, shit, we'll call that Greg guy. Uh, but they were doing, they wanted to do a band that was kind of like straight edge 88 style, like late eighties. Cause remember this is 1995. We're talking about this. So that was the recent kind of wave of awesome was the late eighties that everyone was looking to. And, you know, basically the idea was, was late eighties, hardcore mixed with ideas or mixed with politics. And I was like, I'll give it a shot. Like I, I knew the barest bit about, you know, native politics. I'd done some support work for the Western Shoshone nation in Nevada. And I was like, all right, let's do this. You know, let's give it a shot. So we started together and started to get together and found a drummer and, you know, just, and, and just went for it. But yeah, it just kind of happened. Just, you know, really just kind of happened. It wasn't like this grand plan where I was like, I must think. No, it's just, it was, you know, they asked and I said, sure, why not try it? And then Seattle at that time, what was, I'm, you know, and if you think about it in, the, I was in high school on the East coast, Seattle could have been 
the i mean to me it was the other side of the world what were there was there a scene that you guys were and I'm, I, now that you mentioned himsa um I, I i remembered them but were there others that there was some semblance of a a scene that you felt you know it seemed because it's hard to kind of be that far away if you're on the east coast you got two hours to go to philly you can go you know, know. You can do all those things what was it there was probably some big differences to that being so huge differences yeah huge differences for me moving to seattle was culture shock to the nth degree right for exactly the reason you said it's like oh so and so's playing in new jersey because i grew up in connecticut let's just drive there so and so's in philly so and so's in 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 norwalk in boston whatever it is you could get to a show you know and i didn't i don't even think i ever went to a show in boston but if had we wanted to we could have any time. And Seattle is just geographically isolated, more or less. At the time, there was a good punk scene in Portland, um, you know, not yet a thriving hardcore scene. Uh, Vancouver, B.C. had Strain, who was, you know, they were the, the, the kind of quintessential hardcore band from Vancouver. Uh, and credit where credit is due, Seattle had a hardcore scene, not by Trials doing, but by the doing of Undertow and before Undertow by Brotherhood and Resolution. You're right. Um, you know, Ron Gardepe, you know, from, from Brotherhood, he's, he's the godfather. Like, you know, when, when he comes to a show in Seattle, it's like, you know, people just get it. Whether you're new to the scene, old to the scene, what have you, you can trace Seattle hardcore lineage in all avenues of that, you know, that kind of uh, genealogy back to Ron Gardepe. He is the godfather of it. Um, before that, you know, there was punk for sure, uh, but hardcore started with, with Ron Gardepe and with, with Brotherhood there. So, uh, so we, you know, we were the we were the inheritors, I guess you'd say, of that. I Meaning, just as trial was picking up, Undertow broke up. So you know, all of a sudden there was a scene of you know Undertow, you know, and what they'd created basically, and then trial picked up from there. You know what I love to? I would love to have you explain is, you know, if you think about a band now, uh, they throw up a song on Bandcamp. Uh, I don't know, a label signs them, and there's all these in all these numbers and things that are said about them, their social presence and all those things. Let's get 95. You guys, I'm sure you had an email. Maybe you had an email. Maybe you even didn't. Um, when you felt, when you felt things were coming up, what were those, what were some of those things that you felt? Was it more people emailing you or sorry, writing you? See, I would just say email automatically. Uh, some people yeah. writing you or was it, the band coming through town would see you and then say like, what were they some would of those send things a raven. It was like, it was like game of Thrones. They'd send a raven with a, <laughs> with a note attached to its leg and the raven's note. If you could capture the raven would say band coming through henceforth past the sunset 30 times hence. And then you just stand and wait for the fire on the horizon. And then the, the, uh, the, you know, the cart would come through with the band on it. That's what it feels like now in retrospect. But really, yes, it was people calling each other and writing letters. And, you know, by and large, for a band to start doing well, it was demo cassette sales, right? Trial was, you know, at our first show, I remember, we came up and we, we came up with the money to put out, uh, you know, 90 or something demo cassettes. We had 90 copies of our cassette. And we brought them to this show thinking we'd sell five or 10. And we sold like 60 or 70. I don't even wow. remember how many. And that's how we knew we were like, Oh wow! Something we did must have resonated, but there was no there was no uh, external liking system by way of you know by way of which we could have told that people liked our band without them physically coming up to us, either buying something from us, telling us that they liked our band. There was just no way of saying, "Oh wow, we just put out this song, got two thousand likes in four hours." People like it, 
There was no such thing, right? So it was the demo that, you know, that the demo sales told the tale. And then when Crime Think, the label from the East Coast, got in touch with us and said, we're interested in putting out your 7-inch, then we were like, oh my gosh, like a label is, is interested in in us. This is this is something. This means something, you know. But yeah, there was no there was no uh, easy easy way of kind of like hitting those marks of knowing how popular your band was because you just didn't know. I mean, you just had no idea. I love, it didn't work like it does now. I love that feeling. I actually I closed my eyes as you were talking and just remembered that. Yeah, you had a show. You sold thirty demos. Let's say you you, you sold sixty at your show. That's your that next practice. You've got you know a little bit more confidence, and then you play another show. It seems like, and maybe I would love your take on this. Now it's like you know you put something up on YouTube, and five people, or you know you get five uh, spins, or you know it's a thousand over a month, and you're like, well, that failed. Meaning you don't, but you don't even know. It's like, why is that discouraging you when before you guys just had 60 things, demos sold and you didn't know, but you kept going. And I just feel like there's this instant gratification part that I think sometimes stunts maybe you guys working on something more that maybe you wouldn't have if you, if you were around now. And the thing is, we are, we are all fragile creatures, right? We are all fragile, insecure, terrified, crumbling, terrified creatures. This is what we are as human beings, like all of us, no matter, no matter whether we're this, you know, like, you know, just like, you know, we're just fresh out of a breakup and we feel insecure and terrible, or whether we're just this stalwart, powerful human being like Paul Bearer, you know, whatever we might be in between, <laughs> we are, we are, we're all insecure, frightened creatures, all of us. Okay, so, so with that, given that we wake up every day, you know, hoping somehow that we're going to make it to the end of the day without being humiliated or terrified or have our ego totally shattered. The affirmations that we get throughout our day, whether it's a look and a smile from someone we think are attract, we think is attractive to a pat on the back or a handshake or a congratulations or a thank you from somebody, you know, these things have varying degrees of potency for us, right? Varying degrees of potency. And I'm really curious not to answer your question with a question, but I'm really curious about the difference between you posting this, this podcast with, with me today and getting, let's say, a thousand likes versus 10 people coming up to you saying, I listened to the podcast with Greg, I liked it. Would you rather have the 10 in person or the thousand likes? And that's not a question answer specifically, because what happens if it's 25,000 likes versus 200 people coming up to you face to face? I'm really curious about that question because we are all trapped in the middle of that what the hell is going on this created by social media and liking. The validation which comes from me putting something on Instagram, putting something on Facebook, tweeting something, and getting a certain number of likes, like that does something for me. But it's scary because it's empty. Like you alluded, it's empty. It's empty. It's empty. So I would much rather have the in-person and, you know, the, the people who write me or the people who, you know, come up to me and say, hey, this song, this spoken word thing, this what, what have you, these, these are meaningful things to me. I'd rather have that personal connection. Yet at the same time, I'm an idiot addict like anybody else. And when I post something, it's like, oh, that thing got 200 likes. I go to sleep happy. But it's just an illusion. It's just... It's seriously poison for the brain, and we just can't stop taking it. That's the that's the part that I when you said it, I was like I would rather have. I mean, I got an email from someone. I think 
I forget if it was the Philippines or something, and they were like, we love your podcast, you know, we've learned about all these bands, and I was like, day made, done. I don't need any. I don't need anything else in my day. I am full. Some fucking random kid is stoked on something, and I don't even know him. And he wrote me, and that's it. That could have been one like. That could have been a comment or an at reply on Twitter. And yes, it's good to have the conversation, and that's how you talk to people. But it's it just feels empty at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, maybe and we need someone that's 15. Maybe that's enough for someone that's 15. But I, I don't know. I still feel like that's – I mean, I get so much done on the phone, work-related, personal. You get more out of you. You know, it's, It just seems like – I don't know. I wish, uh, I wish there was a way to understand if the new – if the generation's coming up, if, if, if that is enough. Is that – or is it, is it only empty to us because we're old and washed up? Yeah, and the thing is, like, I honestly believe that in-person affirmation, in-person communication, in-person critique has has a, a limitless value. And I'm like you. I love the phone. I could talk on the phone 10 hours a day, never get bored, always be stoked. Constant phone, love it. Love it, love it, love it. Te- texting, too, for whatever reason. But the phone is just like, I love it. I love connection. I love laughing. I love, like, getting serious. I love all of it. And, you know... People are saying that people are using the phone, obviously, less and less and less. Uh, it's more immediate. You're more on the edge. Uh, you, you know, if, if you say something and I respond, there's the risk that I might say the wrong thing and then have to backpedal and defend myself somehow. So why would I want to talk on the phone, especially with the new Facebook slew of emoticons that allows me to wow, angry, like, hate, kill, or whatever they are. Your comment, it's much easier to do that and feel safer behind that. Honestly, though... And this is where I'm going to sound like I'm 800 years old, like those damn kids. Um, but honestly, the world that I want to live in is a world with more direct human interaction. Like, and I, I admit it, I'm, I'm an idiot addict. I am connected to social media constantly. I'm constantly drinking the poison, like, you know, or drinking the sweet nectar, however we want to, we want to look at it. But at the end of the day, I crave being out in the world, talking to people. I don't care where it is. Spoken word tour across Russia, hanging out in Haiti, United States, Canada, South America. I crave it all day long, meeting people face-to-face, friends, enemies, whomever, talking to people, talking through things, connecting in this one and only life we have about the things that, that make us feel. That's all I care about at the end of the day. And social media for me is never going to take the place of that. Yeah, it's it's again that that empty feeling of of being like, wow, this is this isn't what this isn't what this is, um, and then it's like it's like almost a perception too. You you post a happy photo all day, and then or you there's these people, you know, they post photos, and then a couple years later, it's like, oh, we we got a divorce, or there, you know, it's it's this this. It's it's not as if I went up to that person and talked to them, and then after the cheery story and the couple other things, you kind of get into it, and you're like, oh, wow, things are kind of troubling. Maybe I could help you. But it's like this perception of it, and I think – I mean, I feel like there's some with, – with, with music and, and performance, I would almost hate to be a band today. I, I, I just – I the amount of things that you have to do, the amount of distractions, I mean – I don't know if you. I was at a hardcore show and you just have to stare and look at the singer. Now, well, if you're playing a song I don't like, I can uh, go look at my phone. I can, you know, do all these things that, you know, you're just not. There's, there's just. 
it's it's even harder, like you said, to have those personal connections because we're almost like drones or zombies. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? And you hit on something earlier that really resonated with me when you said the kid from the Philippines writing you saying, I love your podcast, could have been a like. Like, that really resonated with me because that's the other side of this too, right? If we've created a new social vocabulary, so it's not to have your and my conversation right now fall into, you know, like I said, jokingly, the damn kids, you know, in this new generation, they don't know nothing about communication. Like, if we've created a new social vocabulary and a new interactive emotional vocabulary that expresses itself through clicking like or, you know, whatever other digital means, it might very well be that there's so much more behind that one or two or three or a thousand likes that we might never hear about. And we just have to have faith that it's there because like you said, the kid in the Philippines, he might've just clicked like on a post rather than written to you. The fact that he went the extra effort, the extra distance and made that extra effort really made a difference for you. But there are some times I know that I really, really, really like my friend Jake's video, but I don't text him and say, dude, I love your video. I don't call him. I don't drive to San Francisco and say, Hey, I saw the video and it really changed my life. I like it. So that's important to remember too. Right. And you know, maybe it's just that we are in the midst of uh, of a changing social dynamic that we have yet to truly understand. And I don't mean you and I as guys in our thirties or forties have yet to understand, but I mean, literally the social fabric has yet to be woven tightly enough for us all to truly understand how we're communicating, why and when. And, and that's interesting to me, but I still hope that there's in-person, in-person and direct communication amidst it. Do you think, and then again, I am not a scientist, I am, everyone could laugh, I, do you think it's changing our brains? Do you think it's changing, like, over time, over, like, are these things doing that? 100%, and this is my opinion, right? Okay, remember, Disclaimer to all audience members listening, Greg Bennett has like a Bachelor of Fine Arts in theater. Talk to me about Shakespeare and I'll speak for some authority. Talk about brain chemistry, social science. I'm like an advanced beginner at best. I'm a scholastic wannabe, an a- academic wish he was. This is not the, the, the words of somebody who's about to win a Nobel Prize in, in, social, in the social sciences. But uh, absolutely, I believe it's changing our brain chemistry. I know... From a personal standpoint, I find it so much harder to think than I ever have in my entire life. Because let's say I was listening to you and me talk, just like you said, kid at a show, the, the, the band is going a direction other than what he or she likes, girl or guy pulls out their phone and is instantly in another world. I'm the same way, but if I'm reading a book and I hit a, a passage that I don't understand, my default mechanism now is, Oh, I wonder who texted me. Pick up my phone, right? Or if I'm online, I'm reading an article. I'm like, oh, God, this is challenging. I find myself automatically, like I'm automatically, you know, uh, checking this out of the other web page or getting easily distracted. We've all done that. We've all, you know, sat down to say, you know what? My mom's birthday is next week. It's really important that I look up the birthday present that she likes. And then like within seven minutes, we're reading about the mating, like the mating patterns of otters or like, you know, how to solve a Rubik's cube or watching some, you know, YouTube video or whatever, right? So like at the, at the end of the day, our ability to stay focused, at least my own, has absolutely changing. And, you know, if there was, if there was somebody who was involved with, you know, with, with, you know, science here, I'm sure they could tell us that our, uh, you know, I'm sure there's been studies done that, that today, whether young, older, or in between cell phones and computers have affected us in ways that don't allow us to, to, to process in the same ways that we have before. I'm almost positive of that. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like it's, it's those things that, 
you know, I was watching um, some old game show, and, you know, they're smoking, and, you know, how ridiculous that looks, or even going to shows 10 years ago in New York City, you know, there, the, you, you, there were cigarettes, and now there's not. And I just, oh, wow, that's really dumb. I wonder what we did. Same thing. They're going to be like, remember all those assholes looking at Facebook all day? <laughs> They're like, and, and you know what? That, that could be. And you're, you've totally hit on something. That, you know, this is what I was talking about before, about the, the social fabric not having been yet woven tightly enough for us to understand what's going on with new communicative patterns. Times change. And, and society changes in dramatic ways. And you hit on one, the smoking thing. Like now, if you're smoking, you're an asshole. Right, but like forty years, fifty fifty years ago, if you were smoking, you you were you were totally cool. It was on planes you were smoking. You know, I always use the example when thinking about this. If you know listeners who aren't you know in the in the forties would never remember this TV commercial. I remember it as the first thing I remember from television. I was probably three when this came out. But if you Google or, or look on YouTube for uh, uh, American Indian crying TV commercial or something like that. There was a TV commercial on, and it was in the mid-70s. I was just a little kid. And um, it's this uh, car driving down the road, if I'm remembering it correctly, and the people throw their garbage out the window, and uh, it lands at the feet of this guy in Native American garb, like stereotypically Native American garb, Native American guy, and it pans up to his face, and he has looked down at the garbage littering his earth, and there's a tear rolling down his cheek. Okay. That sounds melodramatic and ridiculous in a day and age where if I want to look up deicide videos, I can do that from my phone. But back in the day, this was like devastating for the country and changed the social fabric and the social framework yet again, so that we did not then in time throw our garbage out the windows of our cars and litter. It became unheard of over time. Like we just wouldn't think of doing that generally today. And you hit on it with the smoking too. It's like over time, Cultural values change, things change, our relationship to, you know, to whatever it might be, gay rights. And, you know, now in the last few years, of course, not that it hasn't existed before, but trans rights has come to the forefront of, of conversation. Fifty years from now, I would hope that people are sitting around having conversations about how, you know, uh, Facebook and social media changed uh, changed everything for us in the same way that they would look sit around and say, what, smoking? It shows what? You know, there wasn't, there wasn't gay marriage for everybody? What? Trans? You know, people didn't have equal rights, you know, and look at the at history with this incredulous kind of what the fuck, like, how could that possibly have been the case? And I hope that they look at social media and say that this is an interesting stepping stone on the way to something uh, more dramatic and, and more interesting. Not yeah. sure. Hopefully, though. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. And I think what you touched on a little bit earlier had me thinking about hardcore again. And I just always had this fascination of the the hardcore show the community you know if it was food not bombs or if it was the DIY ethic and obviously that's something that really i fucking love and and feel like i'm trying to take pieces of ev- every day and there's something about hardcore that i think maybe i want your perspective on is you know there's always the time where someone says something or you have something to say or or, or your lyrics and there are people that believe that. There are people there that are going to do something. There are the the, the, the smart ass that's going to yell, shut up and play the song. There's going to be um, people that are just there to punch someone. Um, because hardcore felt so, it was had this outwardly of, yeah, we're community. And then, you know, there were crews, there was rivalries. I just, I always had this tension with it and it, and it somehow pushed me away um, from it because I just, I, it didn't seem like, do you feel like that's with every scene or I think you being up there being politically minded and saying these things 
were you hoping that it you're not going to take over the whole room but you're going to get maybe one like, always yeah there's always one there's always going to be one and even on the night when there is not one the only reason i can say that there is not one is because of an ego-driven perspective, which suggests that unless one actual living human being comes up to me with an affirmation after a show, that there wasn't one, okay? The ego in Greg goes, oh, four people came up to me after the show and said they loved it. Oh, we just played at Slough Fest in the Czech Republic and 130 people said, we loved your set, right? Therefore, it was a good show because I got this gratification. That's bullshit and craziness because it speaks to exactly what we were talking about before. I need the likes. Click on me. Show me that you like me because what every single time trial and now my other band between earth and sky between earth and skies really coming to the forefront in my life. Like we're going to be recording an album this year. Uh, anytime that either band has played, I always remember there's, there's one and that one might not come up with that affirmation. They might not come up and say anything. They might never write the email or the letter or send the text or make a phone call. They might never, ever, ever interact. They might disappear into life and never be heard from again, yet they still were the one, just not one that came up and said, hey, good job, and offered a handshake. So there's always one, even in the mist. And this is one thing that always propelled trial. Between Earth and Sky has encountered this less because our music is... Uh, more melodic, m- more emotional, more psychologically driven, uh, arguably more intense, heavier in a, in a like, wow, we're alive and this hurts and is confusing and what are we supposed to do with this existence kind of way. But when Trial was playing, there, the, you know, we kind of bridged, bridged this line between people who were showing up going, yes, politics, we would like to know your perspectives on, you know, on anarchism, on, on capitalism, and, you know, all these different ideas or whatnot. Not that I'm the one who has the answers, but just like I was another piece of the, the, the much larger puzzle, right, or the trial was. Um, but we, we had those folks coming, and then we also had the kids who were like, dude, sick mosh, and wanted to just kill each other and ensure that no one in the room would have any descendants, you know, after the night was over, right? So... We, we bridge the gap between those two worlds. And on the nights that were more like mosh, kill, death, death zone, you know, insanity, um, I always would say to myself, the kid might not come up. She or he might not come up after the show, but I know that we can reach them through the passion in the music and the passion and ideas. I know it. And, you know, not to, you know, over-example you or, or talk you off about the stuff, but we played in Leowarden in the Netherlands. I'll never forget this. 1998, 99. And uh, I said to the audience before our song, when there's nothing left to lose, I said, uh, let's try an experiment. For the next three minutes, whatever you do, do it in response to the music, in response to the lyrics. If you know the lyrics, sing along. If you don't know the lyrics, sing along. If you want to scream, sing along. If you want to scream, whatever you want, sing along, whatever your moves are, the kickboxing, stage divey, finger pointy, throw it all the fuck out the window for the next three minutes. What if we did an experiment where there were no rules and we were following no conventions? What would that room look like when we played our song? Okay. It was like a fucking atom bomb went off in this room and it was an atom bomb that was detonated by a room full of people who gave themselves the permission to express themselves freely. That was a rare and awesome moment. That sounds amazing. The, it was bonkers. After the show, a woman came up to me after 
the immediate group of people who were like, great show, great show, great show, great show, handshakes and high fives. A woman came up to me from the back of the room when there was no one left, and she said to me, when you played that one song, I stood by myself in the back of the room, and I screamed as loud as I could, and I was crying. That moment changed my life. I, wow. hu- I hugged her with everything I had, and that's, that for me was the lesson, right? The kids who were still up front doing whatever they were doing and screaming, great, good for all of us. But the woman in the back of the room by herself stood by herself screaming as loud as she could and was crying, earth-shattering. I mean, you're right. There's these rules of the of a show, um, and there's ways to stand and be, and you know, everyone's all vulnerable and wondering if they're doing things the right way. And for you to say that, and then not only say it but have people respond and do it, was probably pretty rare. It, it felt rare to me, and and again, from my perspective, it was the room full of people giving themselves the permission. Maybe what we said from the stage was a catalyst in a way, but everyone in the room has to say yes, right? We can't say, you will now have the permission to do this and therefore do this thing that is uh, the embodiment of freedom, because that's not freedom. That's just another kind of, that's a softer dictatorship, right? But, you know, they gave themselves the permission. Because going back to what we were talking about before about social media, especially with the new Facebook buttons that let us like, angry, wow, everything, this is not for us. Facebook didn't create that so that Tom and Greg can more clearly and freely express themselves. You know, you post that you ate a vegan hot dog and Greg likes it. I posted I ate three vegan hot dogs and you wow it. That's not for you and I to feel free and express ourselves. There's no anarchism of the human spirit going on here. They are collecting data about what we like so that they can sell us more shit by more effective advertising to cause Facebook stock price to go up. This it's is a free. business transaction. <laughs> we're we're using a, a free service. That's, we're <laughs> using a free service that we agreed, we agreed to the terms of that they would be using our data in order to sell us more shit, and then we get addicted to it. We are giving them data so that they can do better market research. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, that's exactly what it is. We I are know. literally providing market research for advertising every time we're on Facebook, every time we're on social media. Let's not have any misconceptions of it. Is there's that, nothing that's free. Is that yeah, the big nothing, brother? Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. Like, There's nothing free about it other than the fact that we don't pay for Facebook. But we do pay. We pay in terms of our minds. We pay in terms of all of a sudden one day I'm like, Oh, I want a pair of skinny jeans. I wonder why I want skinny jeans all of a sudden. Well, aside from the fact that my <laughs> girlfriend says you should look get, you look good in a pair of skinny jeans. Well, but why does she say that? Why do I say yes to it? It's probably because at some point we clicked like on the skinny jeans. So then every once in a while in the Facebook feed on the side is skinny jeans. And I don't even notice it because they're so clever about the goddamn advertising that one day I wake up and rather than kissing my girlfriend or eating breakfast, I'm like, give me the skinny jeans, right? It's all manipulation, all manipulation all the way down, nothing free about it. So when you talk about like, you know, you know, people you know, having this passionate moment, you know, that, that felt, that felt more free. I don't know, fully free. Cause of course there's confines of the room and the, the dynamic of me as singer and nobody else has a microphone. We can get, you know, crazy intellectual about it, but it felt more free than, than a lot of the reality we're living in oftentimes. It's, it's that moment right as you wake up. Uh, first thing in the morning, nothing's wrong. You forgot everything. Uh, you're popping out of your dream, and then t- 
half a second later you remember oh, i gotta go to the bank uh, i've gotta get to work on time like uh, oh yeah that uh, that person's an asshole like that that one second i feel like <laughs> that was what you had at that show for three minutes <laughs> for three minutes it was like we all woke up first thing in the morning this is why i love traveling anywhere in the world like because, you know, a couple of years ago when I was in Russia, anytime I'm in Haiti, and all of a sudden I'm so out of my element that if I want to go to the Thai restaurant that I like to go to, but realistically it's more comfort food for my tortured mind, right, that I go and, you know, and eat myself into oblivion or something like that. In Seattle, I don't have that when I'm in Haiti. I don't have that when I'm in Poland. I don't have that when I'm, you know, in the Czech Republic or in Russia or what have you. And all of a sudden you're out of your element and you go, oh, man, like life is happening here like this feels like life happens here you know for you maybe not for the local people for whom they wish they could be in seattle eating thai food but like you know for you it's like wow life is happening here because you don't have these things to fall back on that you normally fall back on like the bank or the errand or the person that you don't like or that you're mad at or that sent you the angry text message last night. Because all that stuff, like the bank and like, I got to take care of all these things. It's like, granted, sometimes life presents situations to us. Sometimes we create our own situations in life. There's no denying that people have varying degrees of complexity in their lives. But I know for myself, a lot of the shit that I get involved with all day, every day, are ways that I buffer my confrontations with actual real life by way of bullshit. I fill my days with the bank. I fill my days with stress, anxiety, worry, and this, that, and the other thing so that I don't actually have to confront a realer, more, more actual life that I want to be living. I do it all day long. It's all distractions. So, you know, I think the closer we can come to that sense of those three minutes, I think the better off we'll be. And then, you know, I think I want to go back to trial, but I think it, it leads into sort of your, um, what you sort of did after trial. And I thought it's really interesting and, um, you know, quickly kind of explain, I mean, what was that spark for you to be, uh, an entertainer, uh, speaker? I mean, you said you had done acting school, but sort of that switch. And then I think another part of it that if, if people haven't seen is that you're an amazing juggler and you use that in your kind of show as well. Um, what, what, what was the kind of spark for that? Well, a couple things. One, uh, the speaking, let's speak to the speaking first. It's genetic. If you heard my mom on a good day speaking, she could cause you to do anything. If my mom, <laughs> on, honestly, she is a gifted communicator and she was a speaker. She's still alive. She's a, she, she just doesn't actively speak publicly anymore, but she was doing these motivational speeches for, for the elderly about how to exercise as we age. And I always thought, oh, that's cute. My mom's a speaker. Well, about four years ago, I went to see her speak. She did 90 minutes. And by the end of 90 minutes of telling these elderly people in this room why they needed to exercise, I was like, oh, my God, where, where's, where's the room for me to do a push-up? Please, ma'am, could you move your walker over so I could get down and do this push-up? Okay. My mom, honestly, could get you to do anything. She's persuasive, empathic, communicative, just astounding. So in large part, it was genetic for the speaking. And I've always been at a propensity for, uh, for public speaking and not been intimidated by it, that sort of thing. Um, the juggling component's interesting because, it, you know, in recent times, I've transitioned out of that quite a bit. And while I still do it as an accent sometimes for, for, uh, for speaking engagements, it's become far less of the thing that is the thing by which I define myself. And instead, you know, just a, a thing. Like, you know, I jokingly mentioned Rubik's Cubes before. Like, I like Rubik's Cubes. They're nerdy and fun. I like playing chess. But, you know, I don't think there's anyone in the world going, yeah, man, Greg Bennett, that Rubik's Cube chess guy. You know, it's just that I've been 
you know, more vocal historically about, about juggling in the past, but it's definitely transitioned away. But to your, to your question, the jump actually came before hardcore, meaning I realized very early on that communication was a potent way of, of, of sharing ideas and of hearing ideas and, and got involved with presenting or, or, or speaking. And when I learned, you know, to juggle, that was just a vehicle for a young, awkward kid to get in front of people. In getting in front of people, I, I learned, you know, the power and potency of, of sharing ideas. You know, so hardcore was a natural extension of that. And these days with, with spoken word and, you know, with, I'm doing some writing and humanitarian activism and those sorts of things. Um, it's all human connection involved and absorbed, right? So it's, it's all just this logical progression because realistically like juggling could be seen as a circus trick, right? It's just something that clowns do and, and mimes and other assorted wackos, right? But for me, even the juggling has been very significant over the years because it, it speaks to a concept, which is uh, the audience member seeing juggling, much like seeing any other form of artistry or any other form of, um, of performance that requires practice, the audience member has a reaction psychologically to seeing somebody do something that they've practiced for hours and hours and hours on end that is inspiring for the audience member. There's a transformative moment when you see somebody playing the violin, you've experienced it. If somebody's ever picked up an acoustic guitar at a party and played a song that they've written and practiced on their own in the bedroom, you have a moment where you're like, oh shit. And the oh shit moment isn't I'm an idiot. The oh shit moment isn't they're so cool. The oh shit moment, if we really got into the psychology of it, in my opinion, is oh shit, I could do something like that. I could practice something too. Look at what they've done being a lonely human being in the world. Look at what they've done being an awkward, confused human animal. They learned how to make this amazing song and play that guitar. That's so cool. My suggestion is that that's the effect of juggling. If we can extract from extract it from the clowny side of things. Right, there's an artistry in it. And I'd suggest that we feel that at hardcore shows too, to a certain degree, or emo shows, punk shows, whatever it might be. When we see a band who's practiced something, one of the reasons we get inspired, it's like, oh wow, in this life I could do something too. And people get motivated on a core level, like what we were talking about, that three minutes in the Netherlands before, where people gave themselves permission to feel and express themselves. When you watch a performer do something, you, there's a part of you, if you're paying attention to it and not on your phone, that you give yourself permission to then try to do something as well in the world with your time, your loneliness, and your life. And uh, that's powerful to me. So, yeah, that's, that's the tie-in with juggling. That's why I've stuck with it over the years rather than um, you know, completely moving on from it because I'm so fascinated by it as a performative uh, and communicative tool. And then when you're doing these sort of speaking speaking events, and uh, you had said you, you know you did some spoken word and uh, schools, events, corporate events, what are some of those? What are things that they're asking for you? And what are what are some of the? I mean, I, I'm. It's funny. I watched I watched a bunch of them, and if you really don't, if you kind of for me, I was like listening to them and be like, these are that thirty seconds while people are tuning. And in, in a band, and you're getting someone to understand something quickly, um, and you're doing it on a you know longer scale, if it's sixty or ninety or you know thirty. Um, but you are sort of doing that same thing. You're trying to enact something from them. And what are some things that um, you know from those events? Is it is it all the same message, or are there different ones? Are they asking you different things? 
it, 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 it kind of runs the gamut because keep in mind that there are some events where people call me to speak, to be a keynote speaker at a conference of some kind. And uh, corporate aside, like they call, they call me to speak for, you know, student, co- student conferences, universities. Uh, they call for, you know, uh, you know, different types of events. Like a couple of years ago, I spoke at an animal rights conference, you know, but all different types of conferences, not just corporate, certainly, right? So, but even amidst that, there's different reasons why I'm being asked to speak. It might be, hey, we heard about the work that you do with 100 for Haiti in Haiti. Can you tell us about helping people in the third world without uh, falling into imperialist uh, uh, colonizing tendencies, right? How do you inspire people or help people help themselves? Could you talk about that? So absolutely. Okay. That's, you know, that's a very different night than say, if I'm doing spoken word at hardcore shows or on tour, where maybe I'm just speaking about, you know, either funny stories that have happened over the course of, being on the road or just in the course of life in hopes of making a connection with the audience on some terms that they can relate to. So it's a number of different approaches, right? I always think of it from a dramaturgical approach. And what I mean is that, you know, the, the dramaturg in the theater is the person who, who determines why this play is going to be produced. How is it going to be produced specifically falls under the, under the, you know, the, the director and other, other people, but the dramaturg asks why this play at this time in this theater for this audience in this city, questions like that. And then is able to inform the director, okay, do you want to do Romeo and Juliet? It's 2016. Here's some reasons why we would do that play so that when the play gets produced, the audience goes, Oh shit, this isn't just some Shakespearean drivel. This applies to me and my love life and the things that I experience on a day-to-day basis. That backstory of the, of the why and the how and the what and the where is really critical. Well, I find that when I'm on the road, if I went into a spoken word performance with the ideas from last year's tour, I'd be bullshitting the audience. And, and that's true, too. Like, whether it's a conference or whatever at which I'm speaking, if I go in with last month's ideas and last week's ideas, I'm going to be doing a disservice to the audience. I always try to ask why this story for this night, for this audience, what's the reason behind it when I go in? And that sometimes means that I've done tours where the first 14 nights of the tour are different, say, and the first 10 nights of the tour are a different hour, a different 45 minutes, because I just want it to be fresh. For, for that audience in that moment. So, so it's, it's, it's different to answer your question. It's, you know, it's different depending on the night, depending on the audience, depending on what's been going on in that particular city. You know, you know, for example, last night we had, you know, we all read in the paper about this, you know, kind of, you know, uh, violence, you know, KKK kind of situation and, you know, Confederate flags, people stabbing each other and whatnot. And, uh, in, in Oakland, I think it was, you know, I, I only yeah, had a chance right. to read it very quickly. Yeah. So, so if someone was speaking there tonight in that city, I hope that they would have everything they say speak to elements of that somehow, some way, which is, would be very different than the conversation we'd be having, you know, on, in a different city on a different night where maybe something funny happened or something, you know, emotionally charged happened. So, and I, you know, I try to make sure that I'm present with it. I, I, I love that because I, I'm just thinking of, because we're in the political season too, I just remember, you know, it's sort of the same thing like a band. You know, the band will say, hello, Cleveland, and hopefully, you know, it's the right city that they yell out. And then that person <laughs> has that, you know, connection. Or it's that politician that'll be like, you know, I was just down there at uh, Jimmy's Chicken Shack or, whatever, you know, whatever it is. And they're like, mm-hmm. what a great chicken. And everyone's like, oh, man. he Or if you're in Tallahassee, I went to Guthrie's. And everyone gets excited because right. you actually know what that is, even though it's f- fed to them by somebody. Um, but you're right. right. It's, I'm not saying you're doing that, but you're right. You're, you're doing more of a 
an understanding of that environment and what's been happening, and then you're able to craft that story or that that um, spe- uh, that talk to them. Um, and yeah, it seems because, like I mean, that's like that relates to the music part too, because you kind of want that the same thing when those people are in some random ass town. You want them to feel connected to you and not feel intimidated. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, is that it's it's almost like crafting it in the moment, in the moment for people. And you know, when I uh, when I go out on the road this this next year, I'm going to be speaking. I, I have this idea of speaking in some lighthearted, funny way about suffering and survival, right? Because I had a really bad hand injury this this last year, and I've been in in recovery from this hand injury, and you know, thinking on perspectives on suffering and survival and all that comes with it isn't just negative all the time, and hasn't been just negative for me. Granted, lots of pain, and for me, hospital visits and blah 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 and those sorts of things. But um, what it's meant for me is looking at from a different perspective at something that would be very easy to, I think I'm going to invent a word right now, perspectivize with, um, with, with, uh, with, with almost like a, a limited sense of, of scope. What I mean is this. It'd be very easy for me to go, hand injury, bad, life, over. That would be very easy. Or, for, you know, for somebody who didn't have a hand injury, breakup, sadness, life, over. But it could be a different perspective that, that gets carried through amidst a suffering or a traumatic situation. So that's, I want to, you know, kind of bring some different perspectives, some humorous and not even humorous, but funny uh, perspectives to the suffering and surviving nature of, of human beings. And to do that requires being in the moment with people so that they don't just go, oh, okay, uh, I'm not really relating to what he's saying. So it doesn't apply, but if you can make it apply on that night for a specific reason, then you get moments like that Leo Warden in the Netherlands, that three minutes. And then, I mean, too, you're, you're sort of, you're sort of taking yourself out of those moments and looking at it from their perspective, which is, which is fantastic. And I think that, you know, helps the, the listener or the person there connect. Um, when you're doing these, the, these talks, have you, you mentioned the guy, um, you know, earlier, but is there other, has anyone ever come up with, you know, a, a trial record or, you know, told you that reflections is a fantastic breakdown. Like, have you had every, any of those moments? Which that that is yeah. my reflections breakdown. If I could, if everyone wants to pause the podcast and, you know, I just sounded like I had a Boston accent for a second. Sorry about that. So, if you want to go and, uh, uh, and, and reflections has a fantastic breakdown. Listen to it and then come back. the same sincere thing that somebody else might have said. It's new to me every time. I love it. 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 I'm honored by it every time. But the point is, their sincere statement is still the same, but now it's prefaced with, I don't mean to be cheesy, or, hey, I'm sorry, I don't mean to take up your time. I know you probably have a lot going on, but dot, 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 dot. And it's not because I'm like, openly known as the guy who hates cheese, right? But like, and you know, or, or the guy who has so much going on that I don't have time for anybody. But like, I get, I get frustrated with people in a loving way. And I say to them, like, there's nothing cheesy as long as it's sincere. If you hate my guts, if you love what I did, if you're weeping and it's sincere, like, bring that emotion, please. Because the world is filled with shut down, boring, emotionally detached people who are lost in their own crisis constantly and will eventually do nothing more in their lives than filling graves. Like, 
come to me with some emotion, please. Like, let's share in that because that feels like life. So when people come up, yeah, it happens. It definitely happens. And um, you why, know, does, why and do you think that's now, happening? Why do you think that's happening? Well, I was going to say, like, you know, it's between Earth and Sky now, as between Earth and Sky is taking risks, more risks emotionally when we play live, certainly. I think it's happening because people are recognizing, and this isn't saying that what I'm doing is, is genius and it's like Earth shot, but it's like, I think people are recognizing sincerity. They're recognizing that something's happening that's real, and they go, Oh shit, the bank and the errands and all the other stuff that I got swept up in all day long, the sadness that I've been swept up in, the self-doubt that I've been swept up in all day long. This is self-tactics for myself to convince myself that there is only one perspective. Like I mentioned before, before perspectivizing, like creating only one perspective when many others are possible. I think people go all of a sudden, Oh shit, there's other, wait a minute, that's, yeah, that, 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 I know that, I, I see that, I reflect in that. You know, no pun intended with reflections, but I connect to that. That feels like life to me. And they want they want to touch base on those terms. I think that's what's happening there. It's just so you're totally right about someone saying sorry before they even speak. Um when it that shouldn't be the case. You should just say it. Just say it. Just say it, right? So you know, why why would I say to you Thomas, I'm really, this might be really cheesy, but I, I, I really, you know, I, I'm really enjoying our conversation. Why would I, why would I put a disclaimer in front of a genuine feeling? <laughs> what insanity have we created in the world? You know, it's not like, it's not like I can say to you, Tom, I'm going to live probably 150,000 years. You and I will run into each other at least 85 to 90,000 times in the next 150,000 years that we'll be alive. So, you know, even though I'm feeling a little insecure today, it'll come back around in time. I'll feel better next time or the next 80,000th time I see you. We'll, we'll work it out. Meh. Dude, we live for a blink of an eye and then we're gone forever, right? So why wouldn't we take advantage of every opportunity to connect and share? Like, why would we not take opportunity to connect and share any time we feel something or any time we recognize in someone else something which could, could connect us, given what, what blips of, of existence we live before we're, we're snuffed out like candle flames. Like, why wouldn't we take every opportunity? And instead, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you know, uh, my, my feelings aren't valid enough to share because uh, I've trained myself away from emotions. It's like, holy shit, please give me your emotions. Like, I want that. I want to share that back, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. The uh, the thing I always love about um, and we hey, sorry guys, we will talk about emo for five seconds. So I love. What, I was just gonna. Who gives a shit? I was shit? just gonna like interject and be like, I really like the Weaker Dance, like the, the really important band to me. <laughs> okay, thanks everybody. Mic drop. <laughs> so well, that's that. That's that's the point. Is that the the there's this perception that emo is sad and that. It's supposed to be negative and it's all about, you know, your feelings. I never once felt sad listening to the genre emo. I never I, I it's it's not like I wanted to fight people after listening to Madball. I wanted to like go down to the Lower East Side and find, you know, find Freddie. Like that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> right. Okay. That said, I think that the emo exploded the way it did 
And the reason that emotionally charged music or emotionally driven music is still compelling to people is because, you know, as the old adage goes, rage is a mask for the pain. Okay. So when we hear music, that's just out and out anger and rage. Sure. We can tap into that. And there's some value there. And we, I think we all feel anger and we feel rage, but I think that anger without acknowledgement of pain or without acknowledgement of sadness or without acknowledgement of emotion underneath it, it just gets boring. It's like, who cares about your anger? Like I don't care after a while because I don't care about my own after a while because after a while, my anger is a tool that I use to let the world know I'm not hurting, which is bullshit. We're all hurting. It's, it's, we, we, we could devote a whole other episode to the psychological nature of human beings and why it is that we are all constantly confused and hurting. Let's take it as a given just for this moment. Write me after the podcast. We'll get into huge conversations as to why. But my anger is a mask for the fact that I'm feeling emotional and or hurting the rise of emotionally driven, emotionally charged music is connected to people going, I feel that way. I get that. I totally feel that way. You know, like put on, put on any weaker than's album, not to just, you know, call out, you know, from the joke before, but I mean it like call out you know, or rather put on any weaker than's album. And I, like for me, it's like, Oh my, Oh my God. Yeah. I feel, I feel that way. Like I genuinely, genuinely feel that way. I don't feel angry all the time. A lot of times I feel like this, and I think that is what caused the rise of that kind of music. It, it just connects with, with with people who are willing to take that jump. Yeah, and it was, uh, and I think too the the that that time, or sorry, not I didn't even mention time. I say the the nineties or even two thousand. I felt you know you could have played with an emo band, an indie band. You could have had a trial show with the Weaker Thans. That wouldn't have been a weird thing. And I think yeah, was, no, I mean that totally trial, would have happened. Tr- Trial played shows, a number of shows with Saves the Day. That that I would have loved that. I don't know why. I must have, yeah, uh... I mean, I, I think about that to this day, and I'm like, what? Like, how did that work? And in retrospect, their fans probably hated us, ours hated theirs, but I hope that there was crossover, and I assume there was. There's you know, 100% the crossover. The, I, yeah, totally. I just think there was this, there was a certain group of, and I'd love your take if you have one, I think there was a certain group of people that were into hardcore, got into post, found out about emo because a lot of the hardcore guys were in other bands that may be a little poppier. Maybe they sang, maybe they took some punk stuff or they got really slow or they got acoustic and you sort of had this lineage and a little bit of acceptance as the artist went through their chain. There was a moment where I think people realized that, holy shit, we can make a ton of money. We can get signed. We can do all these big things. If we sound like this, um, and people started trying to sound like it, it got derivative. And I think those, a lot of those fans, not all of them, a lot of them gravitated toward it, were in it for like a second and then went away. Um, and I'm not saying everyone has to be in a scene to like get it, but I feel like if you're, if you're in, if you're going to be supportive of something, I, I just, I hate it when people half-ass it. Um, if you're going to go in and support something, support it. And I think there's a, a big subset of that group that's a fan of this era or that, that genre name associated with three or four years, not something that has a long history and something that you're supposed to travel with. You touched on something I think is really interesting, which is, you know, that, you know, watching the artists change, but also, you know, people getting, people getting into that or, or liking that. What I always found fascinating 
is that you you know you you'd be at a show and somebody would be you know uh, you know two stepping kickboxing whatever the parlance of the era was that we're talking about you know crowd killing is the new thing right so whatever it is they would be doing their dance moves and at the end of the night you know that that same person would be like yo stand in my house tonight yo fuck let's go you know and you drive to their house and the second you got to their house what would you do you'd listen to Morrissey everyone would listen to Morrissey. <laughs> Every night, every night, you know, you'd walk into the kid's house and he'd just be like, yo, 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 fuck, 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 you know, whatever, like, like, you know, like, you know, the apocalypse, apocalypse was coming down on his head in every second. And the only way out was that he was going to fight his way out tooth and nail. And we'd get inside and it, the whole room, his whole room would be Morrissey posters, you know, and immediately you're listening to Smiths all the time. Uh, so many people were listening to emotional music and it didn't have to be Morrissey or the Smiths. So many people were listening to emo. So many people were listening to post, you know, post hardcore, post punk, if you will, but you know, post hardcore. And you know, it was, it was everywhere. And I think that there was an understanding, a kinship of sisterhood and brotherhood, a mint, a mist, all of us, that there was more than just the anger and, you know, the angry, you know, it's, 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 per, it's, it's still around. It's, you know, it's persistent. It's still around. Um, and it always will be. But I think that there's been this, this, this connection between people over time that like, wow, I like more than just, you know, you know, I, I like more than just, you know, this raging, angry music that we all listen to when we go to the shows. It's like, you know, I, I'm not, that's, that's not to say I don't like raging, angry music. I just love at the end of the night where you can tone it down a touch and get in with, get in, get in touch with other sides of yourself and the people around you as well. Well, that's that part of it that like you, you loved a bunch of different things. I mean, you saying that you did a saves the day tour, like I would have been absolutely stoked because my hardcore life would have loved it, but my punk emo would have loved it too. And I think there's that group of people that were accepting of all of those and i think there's a i mean there was there there was an example that i think um last week or a few weeks ago i saw a show and it was these five singer songwriters from the emo scene it was the guy from bayside get up kids um andy from um uh uh hot rod circuit and dan from alkaline trio what was interesting is that during uh, Get Up Kids, Saves a Day, or Bayside songs, everyone was sort of quiet or singing along and you know doing things. But if Hot Rod Circuit and Alkaline Trio, they were they were they were talking or they weren't listening, and you could see the band and the, or the other guys in the you know stage getting frustrated. And I just that was that was the microcosm to me because Hot Rod Circuit and Alkaline Trio weren't that big. And Get Up Kids, Saves a Day, Bayside were, and it's those, those kids were only there for that. And they didn't have this sort of sense of shut the fuck up at the show um, that it just you didn't grow up like that. And I just thought that was such a frustrating moment um, to be like, I just wanted to be like, don't you understand? (laughs) Well, I wonder I wonder, too, though, if if, if, if that same show on a different night would have a different effect. Right. And you might be might be dead on accurate about it. I wonder if it would have a different effect. Because you know, I've been to enough alkaline trio shows and watched people lose their minds. But I think I see what you're saying that a younger demographic maybe wouldn't have connected with these, you know, with these different different bands, right? In in, in the same way, I'd just be curious to see what would happen night to night over a course of a tour of that if it would if it would have changed. It actually happened a couple nights later again, and there was a news rep- there was wow. like an article about it being like one of the artists uh, went off stage, got frustrated with the audience, didn't want to come back out again. Like it just it seemed like it happened and I just it goes back to that sort of transition 
thing that I'm talking about where there was this moment, I call it post-Bleed American um, from the Jimmy Eat World record of sort of there's this moment of there's a group of people and that kind of understand the connections and and there's this group of people that don't. And I think even the bands are frustrated by it. That that would that would be curious. It would be curious to talk to to talk to bands, especially you know Jimmy World's a perfect example, right? Because Bleed American, Game Changer, the albums that came, you know, the album that came later, immediately thereafter. Why well, the name is escaping me right now? Futures. But I remember just Futures. Yeah, it didn't hit me as hard as Bleed American had, and I'd be really curious to talk to them about you know how they saw things changing for them, or you know when they go out and play now how things are different alkaline trio maybe you know that's maybe a different a different example but i'd be curious to find a band that has an a, an older and younger demographic maybe jimmy world is not a good example there but a, a older and younger demographic to see what their perspectives are and how people are responding over the course of a set like you know as they play older songs and you know of course every band sees this you play the old music and you know people are really into it play the young the new music and people don't know it as well but maybe in the examples that you're giving, the people who are hearing the new music have heard it in a context that they don't get the scene or they don't get the concept of the show. They don't know the history of the artist. They just like that new song they, they saw, you know, on, on YouTube or, you know, that somebody told them about online and, and they're responding to it differently. That's pretty interesting. And I mean, it is a lot of shut up and play the hits. I just thought there, it goes back to maybe even our, the first thing we talked about was sort of that discovery. There was that effort involved of finding something, going toward a, go, learning about something and it's fleeting. It's that could have been one song on their playlist. And yes, they showed up. I have uh, fantastic. I'm so happy they did. I'm so maybe they bought a t-shirt, but there's that it's, it's fleeting. It's not as invested as waiting in the mail for this thing to go, uh, you know, uh, show up in the mail or a CD or vinyl or, uh, you know, waiting for the band to come because you can't look them up on YouTube and you have to sort of leap of faith, go and hope that they're good. I just think those sometimes things, maybe it is just shut up and play the hits because it's so fleeting. Yeah, I mean, we, this is what we were talking about, right? Like, the, you know, the, the, you know the, 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 the culture of likes. And I'm not saying a younger culture. We are all part of it, right? We're all part of, you know, the effect of social media, the effect of, of interaction. You know, I remember when my, my mom learned how to text, and I'm like, this is going to be the apocalypse. And, you know, we're all, we're all involved in that, in the, in the world of quick and immediate communication, and quick and immediate response time so that maybe we just, you know, we're, we're teaching ourselves out of patience, teaching ourselves out of connection. And I, I'd like to believe that we're not, I'd really like to believe that we're not, but you know, gosh, I'm not exactly sure how to counteract that other than to continually go out in the world and invite and embrace genuine connections with other human beings. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I've kept you very long time. You've been amazing. And I would, I mean, I'd almost want to have five hours of this just because it's, it's great <laughs> to hear this, but I would love, what are there things that you're doing now or uh, in, in the future that you would want people to know about or things that you're working on that you, you mentioned between earth and sky? Um, are there other things that you were uh, wa- wanting to mention? Totally. And I, let's, let's do this. Like, you know, if, if enough people, click like on this episode of the podcast we'll do a follow-up episode 
Or if two people come up in person from the Philippines and say, I am Filipino hardcore woman, I am Filipino, Filipino emo man, we like episode with Greg Bennett, and they actually shake your hand, we'll do a follow-up episode. So either a 1,000 likes or two in-person people from the Philippines. Well, do okay, the people um, from the Philippines have to know who Paul Bearer is? Yeah, I, they, they must, or they're going to learn soon enough, right? Right. Um, okay, but that said, and I'll keep it super brief, you know, 100 for Haiti uh, is the nonprofit that I founded and, and the executive director of, but far more significantly than my connection to it, it's a group of people who are working to do some significant projects in post-earthquake Haiti that are development projects motivated by and for people in Haiti. 100 for Haiti, all spelled out as words, dot org, 100 for Haiti dot org. Uh, Between Earth and Sky, of course, I would invite anybody, any kind to check out the band Between Earth and Sky. And, you know, there's always projects happening. I'm just starting to write a book about a cultural anthropologist named Ernest Becker and make a short film, actually, about the last hours of Becker's life. And I'll, I'm sure that I'll have information about that up on gregbenick.com spelled G-R-E-G-B-E-N-N-I-C-K.com. And it's interesting that you mentioned the juggling before, because the, the website's in transition. For a decade, gregbenick.com has had this juggling component to it. And the new gregbenick.com will have no references to juggling at all. It'll all be about <laughs> ideas. It really will. I, it's all designed. I'm literally waiting on myself to come up with the, uh, the text for a couple of the pages. But yeah, it's like it's, it's juggling free. Greg Benick, now juggling free. Look, at, um, you're transitioning again. Exactly. It's important to <laughs> redefine and, and to kind of dodge and weave and move constantly. It's important. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's enough for people to get started with. And of course, I always welcome people being in touch. So if any, re, if any listeners, readers, if any listeners hear anything that they want to talk about that I've said or that we've said together, I would love for them to be in touch with you, put them in touch with me, however that works. We'll go from there. Great. And um, I, I guess I have to end it on emo. You mentioned the weaker lands. What, what are some other uh, favorite bands from that era or the genre? You know, I would say that I have spent such an inordinate amount of time listening to The Weaker Than um, that they're the only band <laughs> throughout our entire conversation. I've thought to myself, I've got to mention The Weaker Than um, that, that come to mind. I love it. I think that, yeah, I mean, they, there's something like what happened was they played, uh, they played four nights in San Francisco a couple of years ago where they played one album each night. Um, and I had never heard the band before. I went to see Morrissey actually that night and he canceled. And a friend of mine who was Get in line with canceled. me was like, yeah, he can't. Oh, he does it all the time. Morrissey, Morrissey cancels shows. You know, if he coughs on a Tuesday, he cancels the show the following Saturday because he's been sick. Right. You know, if he stubs his toe, it's like, yeah, anything can happen to cause Morrissey to cancel. It could be atmospheric, the weather, a cat crosses path, superstition, anything and he'll cancel shows. Okay. So, so he canceled the show in Oakland and my friend said to me, Hey, I'm going to see this band, the weaker dance tonight. And, um, and, and they're, they're playing this album and, uh, their second album, do you want to go see it? I'm like, I don't know anything about the band. I'd love to go. And, um, we, you know, cause I had nothing else to do since Morrissey canceled. And I went and it was just mind blowing, like front to back, just like every song they played was incredible. And it just, after that, just, it just, you know, it just changed. It just changed my whole perspective on the band. It just really opened up a lot to me. So yeah, in, in follow up part two of this conversation, I'll, I'll listen to some bands other than, <laughs> other than the weaker bands and we'll go from there. That's fine. I, I'm, uh, I mean, I only reference Jimmy Eat World in the podcast, so people people are probably happy there's something else mentioned. <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right. Well, Greg, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Great talking to you, and let's follow up. We'll talk soon, and I look forward to talking to you or any of your listeners anytime. This has been great. Thank you so much. 
My city's still breathing, but barely it's true. Through buildings gone missing like teeth, the sidewalks are watching me think about you. Sparkled with broken glass, I'm back with scars to show. Back with the streets I know will never take me anywhere. 